We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, week by week, text by text. And this week, we come upon a very hard text, a difficult text, a text that challenges us, Uh, a text that I'd rather not preach on, uh, a text I'd rather avoid, but in the kindness of God and the way that we go about preaching at our church, we just preach through whatever's in the book, and it brings us upon passages like this. C.J. Mahaney says this about uh, preaching on divorce. He's the, one of the Sovereign Grace pastors. He says, There isn't a more difficult or complicated topic for a pastor to address than divorce. There isn't a more difficult or complicated topic for a pastor to address than divorce. And I resonate with that. Um, as I prepared this week, I keenly felt that sense of, difficulty to try and comprehend uh, the passage and, and, and the people and how I'm meant to proclaim the truth. Uh, it's difficult, first and foremost, because of the pain and destruction that divorce causes. There are many in this room who are touched by divorce in its adverse and long-term effects. Whether you have been divorced or experienced the divorce of a parent or a close family member, the pain is severe and ongoing for many. It's difficult because we live and breathe in a culture that's drifted so far from the ideal set out by God in Genesis or marriage, um, especially a culture that celebrates the so-called no-fault divorce law that came in in 1973. Uh, Our culture makes it hard to hold to the biblical ideal of marriage, and even churches have moved so far away from the biblical ideal that we get ourselves into such messes as a society and even as a church, which makes it difficult. You may have seen this mishandled or mistaught in the church that you've been in previously, hopefully not here. And in response as a church, sometimes churches become more permissive than Scripture allows to accommodate to the culture. But sometimes churches respond by being more restrictive than Scripture allows in order to compensate for the culture. We want to strike that balance today. Preaching on divorce, speaking on divorce is difficult because the text is actually difficult. Exegetically, this is a tough passage. It's been debated for 2,000 years in church history. Uh, There's no consensus view. Uh, Although the ESV text looks fairly plain, actually in the Greek, and you put it all together, it's actually a complicated doctrine to figure out how it works. It's difficult because what you believe about marriage, remarriage, and divorce, and what I teach on it will have lifelong implications. The words of Scripture bind us. We can't just change it to what's going to be, you know, convenient for us. It's difficult. And speaking on marriage, divorce, remarriage, it's difficult because it's yet another reminder for the many people in our church community who are single and wanting marriage. Another opportunity for you to feel like, here's another thing I'm missing out on. Here's something I want but I can't get. And so even the topic of marriage and divorce that comes up, and as I speak about it, could be painful for you. Yet as difficult as this subject is, we mustn't be too distracted by the difficulties. Like all sacred scripture, this text is here for our good. It ought not to leave us simply informed. We're not here for a lecture, but to be affected. And this text is here ultimately to affect us with more love for our Savior. And so that's my ultimate hope for this passage is that, yes, we'll be informed, yes, we'll be challenged, but we'll go away actually more uh, aware of how great Jesus Christ is as a result. 
This passage will not and cannot answer all your good questions and queries about the complications uh, and what this text has to teach and the entire doctrine of divorce and remarriage is taught in Scripture. I encourage you, um, as we go through it, to let the text speak to you. Write down your questions, but don't sit here thinking, oh, what about, what about, what about? It's going to be hard to do that. But start studying it. I've got lots of great resources I can recommend um, if you want to look into more detail with it. But today, I simply can't give a comprehensive doctrine of divorce and remarriage. It's too big a topic. So I'm going to restrain myself to the text we have here today. But I would open up to say, if you have more questions, I'd love to walk with you through it. If you've got pains or hurts or doubts or confusions, let's study it together, life on life, in more time, in more detail. And so to work through this passage today, to work through these difficulties and to deliver us with a greater appreciation for the Savior, I have three points. Point number one, the case for marriage. Point number two, the ground for divorce. And point number three, the option for celibacy. And we'll go through them one by one. Starting with point number one, the case for marriage. You notice in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19 that the context has changed. Jesus just finished his great speech on the church and what the church ought to be like, the kingdom community that he's about to die to save and bring together in chapter 18. And now he's leaving. He's moving towards Jerusalem. He's heading out of the area. And as you see in verse 1 and 2, he went away from Galilee, entered the region beyond the Jordan. And he's making his way slowly but surely to the cross, Calvary. Crowds are following him. Many people are gathering around him because he's healing as he goes. He's continuing in his mercy ministry. The kingdom is going forth as he proclaims, repent and believe. And then people are being healed. Demons are being cast out. And so the crowds are gathering around him. And in fact, these same crowds will be the crowds that will follow him all the way to Jerusalem and cry out, Hosanna, here comes the king. And they'll lay the palm branches down. So you think Jesus is this traveling preacher, many people are around him, hundreds if not thousands of people around him, but not everyone's on his team. Uh, the, he's, as he approaches Jerusalem, the religious elite, the Pharisees, who were the strictest religious uh, people of the time, they want to trap Jesus. Uh, they want to put him in a position where he gets in trouble. Jesus is in the area where uh, John the Baptist was, and John the Baptist had been arrested uh, and beheaded for saying to King Herod's wife that you have divorced wrongly and remarried wrongly. And as a result of John, uh, John the Baptist's teaching on marriage and divorce, he got killed. So now the Pharisees, while he's in that region, come with this question in verse 3. Look at it. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Notice they're not there to learn. <laughs> they're there to test him, to tempt him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. This is a trap. What they're trying to do is put Jesus not only in trouble with Herod and Herod's wife and hopefully maybe get him killed, uh, but they're also trying to pit him against the major religious teaching of the day. There were two schools of thought that reigned in Jesus' day on this teaching of marriage and divorce. There was the Rabbi Shammai uh, and the Rabbi Hillel. One was more conservative, one was more progressive. Uh, Rabbi Shammai taught that you could only get divorced on the basis of fornication or adultery. That was the only way you could have a divorce. Whereas Rabbi Hillel taught that basically, uh, and this was only for men, only the men could divorce in Jewish culture. And 
the man could divorce his wife basically for any reason. Uh, and there's even stories and reports of a man divorcing his wife because she burnt his food. Uh, and that caused him disfavor, so he divorced her. He found a more beautiful woman, so he divorced his wife. And so the Pharisees are trying to put Jesus in the middle and choose one of these two teachers and kind of cause a bit of controversy. Now, those rabbis were not just coming up with laws out of nowhere. They were actually trying to rule on one of these important Old Testament texts in Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, now, you've got to remember, this is after the Ten Commandments, after they've been liberated from Egypt. Now, Israel is its own nation state uh, within this area of Canaan. And Moses is giving case law. What do we do if this were to happen? And so Moses says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency, and that's kind of the, the key word that they're all trying to figure out what means, in some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and remarries, so becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or even if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring that sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Now, that's going to look very confusing to us, and it's not applicable to us in the same way, but the point of that law was a law to protect women from being divorced too quickly. They were quite powerless in the culture, and so this law was an accommodation so that a man couldn't just be like, look, I'm, I, I want to get rid of you, you're divorced, I'm getting my dowry price back, and then changing his mind six months, 12 months, two years later, and saying, actually, no, I want you back, you're, you're coming with me. It was a divorce to protect women. Uh, protect them against selfish and sinful men. Now, in Roman culture, uh, which is what the rest of the New Testament was primarily written to address, it was permissible for men and women to divorce, basically like our day, no-fault divorce. You didn't have to have a reason, you could just get a divorce. But in the Jewish culture, only the men could do it. So how will Jesus answer? How, how will he interpret this text? But once again, what's brilliant about Jesus is he rarely answers questions and often asks them back in return. And it's a great strategy. Uh, don't always answer people's questions. Ask them another one back if they're interested and see where it leads them. He cuts straight through the test and gets to the hard hearts of his opponents. Look at verse 4 through 6 and Jesus' reply. He answered, now this is to the religious elite, right? They've basically memorized the book of Genesis and beyond. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and, father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' basic reply is this, your whole perspective is wrong. You want to debate the grounds of a divorce? Well, I want to make the case for marriage. 
Jesus' argument here is positive and in the ideal. He's showing us and them how we ought to view marriage. And so he takes them back to Genesis, takes them back to pre-fall times, takes them back to God's original design for marriage, for humanity, for flourishing. Genesis is the blueprint. Genesis is like the, the design manual, whereas Deuteronomy is the contingency. Genesis is where we get to know the original design and intention of God for marriage. You'll notice in verse 4 you'll no, and 5 these words. You might know them from Genesis 1 and 2. In verse 4, he alludes to Genesis 1, 27. And then in verse 5, he quotes directly Genesis 2, 24. And putting them together, he's created a beautiful view of marriage for us to behold. In verse 4, he shows that man and woman, and note the gender, which is you know, obviously highly flammable for our day and age, but God created two sexes, male and female, two genders, and they can't be changed. That's the design. And he's fashioned and formed them as complementary beings. They're not the same. They're different. They're distinct and unique. But not only that, he's brought them together. They're designed to complement one another. They're designed for one another. And then in verse 5, he says what they're meant to do. And notice that in verse 5, he, he attributes to God what is only said by the narrator in Genesis. So if you go back and read Genesis, you'll see that the narrator just says um, these verses in verse 5. But Jesus says, and you'll see in verse 4, he says, um, and it's a, just a good argument for how Jesus views Scripture. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother? So Jesus' view of the Old Testament is that what is written in the Old Testament is what God says. That's just a free aside. Sola Scriptura last week. Okay. So what are they meant to do? This man and woman, complementary, are designed to come together into what's called a one flesh union. They do not just cohabit. They're not just friends with benefits. They're not just parents working together. They don't just sleep together. But according to God, when a man leaves his father and mother, they become one flesh. And they become one flesh through their sexual union, through the act of sex. And in fact, here's a, okay, here's a really random story from the Reformation, just to go back last week. When Martin Luther got married, the practice at the time was, is that when on the marriage night, because consummation and the sexual union was the binding of the marriage, there would be a witness. And so there was a witness on the marriage night of Martin Luther to his wife, Katie, that watched the marital union come together. That, so I'm glad we don't do that anymore, but that's how it's significant. Uh, they saw the, the marriage act, uh, and in fact, the sexual act of that thing, that, that the sex is not just sex. It, it's a binding of souls. It's a union that is joined together. It's far more than what we make it out to be in our culture today. It's a deeply sacred act, a fusing of souls. In verse 6, Jesus says that God has joined them together, that God has done it, that he, you could say, has welded them together, glued them together, sewn them together. They once were two, now they are actually one. And it is God himself. God himself has designed man and woman, created marriage, and called them together. And so Jesus summarizes and says, what God has joined together, and at all the weddings using the old English, let not man put asunder. Or in modern speak, don't let man separate it. 
So therefore, Jesus is changing their whole perspective. He changes the ball game. He moves from Deuteronomy and case law back to Genesis and the ideal. And he wants them to see that divorce is no trivial matter. It's no trivial matter for theological debate. Divorce is the tearing apart of a unified body. It'd be like taking a limb and wrenching it from your own flesh. That's divorce. It's not just oh, like this, you know, perforated paper and you just tear it apart and it's all neat and tidy. Divorce is the splitting of two souls. It's smashing a God-created union. And so man and woman should not entertain this ideal lightly. This gift, this intrinsic element of created order is to be held as sacred. To run against marriage is to run up against gravity, so to speak. And so we need this view today. In our church, in our families, if you are single and considering marriage, this is what it is. If you are married, enjoy this moment to be reminded this is what you are participating in. It's not just friendship. It's not just this great union. It's God-ordained, God-brought-together, God-fused. So they want rules for divorce. Jesus wants to make the case for marriage. That's point number one. Point number two, though, the ground for divorce. Uh, the Pharisees, they're not finished. They know their scriptures and they know Deuteronomy 24.1 and they want Jesus to answer it, so they press him. Read verse 7. So they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Note how they twist it. Um, why did Moses command it? Well, in Deuteronomy 24, it's, it's no command. It, it's a concession. It's permission, but it's, it's not a command. But look at Jesus' reply in verse 8 through 9. He said to them, well, why did Moses command it? Okay, here's why. Because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you, allowed, see how Jesus views it, to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Again, he goes back to Genesis. He doesn't want them to leave Genesis behind. And then in verse 9, he makes his ruling. Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, Jesus turns the tables again on them and wants them to see that divorce is here because of human sinfulness. And not just the human sinfulness of the Israelites back then, he brings it into the present and says to the Pharisees, because of your hardness. And perhaps because of our hardness of heart too, divorce exists. The dark reality of sin is that we don't live in the garden anymore. The dark reality is that marriages do break down, but it's never neutral. We never just fall out of love. There's always a sin problem involved in divorce. And so Moses permitted divorce for the management of a sinful community. The Bible has high standards, incredibly high standards, but it also does have accommodations for communal living in sin. So what was permitted in Deuteronomy, though, in Jesus' time, had been required. If someone committed adultery on you, you were required to divorce her. They went beyond the words of the law. But Jesus wants to emphasize, again, this is not the ideal. From the beginning, it was not so. 
And then in verse 9, he gives his authoritative ruling. This is commonly called the exception clause. Now, if you read in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, there's no exception. It it reads basically uh, like this. Where is it? Verse 9. Basically, he says this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Uh, And so Matthew, in his gospel, though, includes this except word in there. Except for sexual immorality. And so this is where all the debate enters in. Why does Matthew include this exception clause here? Some commentators think it's not original. Some people think he's just added it in because it was too hard for that day and age. Uh, I do think it is original. It's a part of the original text. But the word there, sexual immorality, makes things even more difficult. The word there is the Greek word porneia. Uh, The word porneia is a very broad term. Uh, It refers to sexual sin, but it can be all manner of sexual sin, not necessarily adultery. Jesus has already used the word mokeia and porneia. Mokeia means adultery specifically, and porneia, sexual immorality, in the same sentence in Matthew 15. So obviously he knows the two words. So why does Matthew use this word porneia, which is far more broad, which can involve all manner of sexual sin, And that gets a lot of commentators thinking and wondering, what does this actually mean here? And so over the years, there's probably, you could summarize it into three major views on how to view divorce and remarriage within the church. Firstly, all agree that death is the termination of a marriage. If the partner is still living though, because what God has joined together, let not man separate, that's where the confusion comes in. If you divorce, can you remarry? Well, First of the three positions, no divorce, no remarriage. Uh, Scholars and preachers and pastors like John Piper, John Montgomery Boyce, F.F. Bruce, uh, they have a very powerful argument. And if you study this argument, it's really good and quite convincing. Uh, They believe that porneia does not equal adultery. It equals some kind of sexual fornication that occurs before marriage during the betrothal period. That's why it's included in Matthew's gospel, because what did... Joseph too, he wanted to divorce Mary quietly while they were engaged. So that's why Matthew includes it here. So their argument is that no divorce is permissible and no remarriage is permissible in the kingdom. Uh, It's a very strong view because of their text in Mark and Luke and their way of interpreting 1 Corinthians. Although I do find it convincing, uh, I don't ultimately agree with it. The second major view is that divorce is permissible but no remarriage. Remarriage isn't permissible. Uh, This is actually the majority historical view of the church. Uh, Modern scholars you may have heard of, Wenham and Gundry, they believe in this position. Uh, Basically, they believe that divorce is permissible due to porneia, so sexual immorality, but the remarriage, if you do get remarried while your partner's still alive, um, is actually adultery. So you can't be remarried, otherwise you're committing the act of adultery. The third view, and actually the majority view of Protestant churches today, is divorce and remarriage are permissible on certain grounds. Uh, This is the view held by Don Carson, John Stott, John MacArthur. Uh, It's in the Westminster Confession of Faith from the 1700s. Basically, the idea is this, that divorce is permissible on two grounds. Matthew 19 says, due to porneia, so any sexual immorality can be grounds for divorce. Uh, And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes an argument that potentially uh, the desertion of an unbelieving spouse is grounds for 
before divorce. So if you're a Christian woman or man and your non-Christian partner leaves you because of your faith and doesn't want to be married to you, um, Paul says you are not bound. Uh, but it's, it's also, that's another exegetical thing, which you don't have time to get into, but what does that mean? Don Carson summarizes like this. Uh, we may paraphrase as follows. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, though this principle does not hold in the case of porneia. That's interpreting Matthew 19. The point is this. In this, divorce is legitimate on the grounds of sexual immorality, though not required. In the time of Jesus, adultery inevitably led to divorce, but Jesus does not require it. He only require it. He only permits it. Why is this? Well, think of the context. Last chapter in chapter 18, when your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go and rebuke him, hoping to win him and gain him, asking that he would repent. And then verses 21 to 35, what's the response if he repents? To forgive him. So the whole context is on rebuke and reconciliation. And then you get to 19 and the whole ideal of marriage is that it's one flesh union for life, the fusing of souls. And so Jesus doesn't even want adultery necessarily to end a marriage, but he does permit it. And so the ideal is that even in the brokenness of a terrible marriage situation, that maybe, just maybe, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through gospel repentance, an adulterous husband or wife could repent of their sin, actually change, be reconciled to their partner, and remain married. And many marriages have done this, though not all. So divorce, I believe, is permissible, even within the high view of marriage espoused in Genesis. And in the Jewish time, it, that, that view actually fits with the current assumptions of the time that a divorce would inevitably lead to a remarriage. Now, this is always complex and complicated. Any view of this passage which treats it like the Pharisees, how can I find a way out of my marriage? Or what are the exact rules and all the exact you know, details and ideas is missing the point. What's the rule misses the heart of the passage. It misses the intended redemptive effect, which is to make us view marriage more highly. I'm going to read a long quote from a commentator, R.T. France, because I think this is really helpful, and it's a great exegetical principle as we read the Bible. He says this, This is a principle which applies much more widely than only to the specific issue of divorce. Here's the principle. Ethical norms should not be sought in legal texts which deal with the situation where things have already gone wrong, but in the most fundamental statements available of the positive will of God for human behavior. There is a saying, hard cases make bad law, and it may be suggested that they make even worse ethics. The ethics of the kingdom of heaven, as we have seen them illustrated in chapter 5, 21 to 48, Seek not primarily how evil may be contained and alleviated, but how the best may be discerned and followed. It would make a huge and beneficial difference to modern debates on divorce if this priority were observed, so that the focus fell not on what grounds for divorce may be permitted, as in the Pharisee's question, but on how marriage may best live up to the Creator's purpose for it. There will no doubt always be a need for troubleshooting legislation and pastoral help when things have gone wrong. But if that is where our ethical discussion begins, the battle is lost before it is joined. 
Those who start from Deuteronomy 24 will have as their basic presupposition that divorce is to be expected. The question being only, how is it to be regulated? Those who start from Genesis 1 to 2 will see any separation of what God has joined together as always an evil. Circumstances may prove it is to be the lesser evil, but that can never make it less than an infringement of the primary purpose of God for marriage. Okay. Jesus is making a case for marriage here, but he's also making an exception for divorce. He wants us to share in the glories of Genesis, but recognizes the disasters of Deuteronomy. And so though I find the arguments for no divorce, no remarriage very persuasive, I'm ultimately convinced of the third view, that in some circumstances, divorce and remarriage are permissible, though not required. Whatever the case, um, our current society's position on no-fault divorce has no basis in Scripture and cannot be argued. And any denigration of marriage ought to be rejected. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honour among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So we ought to take this text very seriously when we think about it. To remarry once divorced, um, if it not a legitimate divorce, could be the grounds of you committing adultery. And so we've got to take it very seriously and treat it with the weight. So we begin in Genesis. We need the Genesis perspective. So that's point two, the ground, the ground for divorce, according to Jesus, sexual immorality. But we're not done. There's a surprising lesson that Jesus wants to end with. Point number three, the option for kingdom celibacy. The option for celibacy. Jesus wants to provide an alternative to both marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We live in a sex-obsessed world, and even in a marriage-idolizing church culture. That to feel like a complete and real person, you need to have sexual and relational fulfillment. And sadly, at times, to feel like you truly fit within a church... You must be married and wanting to have kids. But this, according to Jesus, is decidedly not the case. It's not the case biblically nor historically. In fact, if you look at the fourth century, uh, they so valued celibacy as a result of this text that they saw that as the ultimate expression of godliness. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, I don't know what the tone is, but... (laughs) I don't know, they're young guys, but I can imagine something like, well, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. So basically, they're like, if that's what marriage is, it's so permanent, and you, know, you can't just get out of it whenever you want, phew, you know, maybe it's better not to get married in the first place. And Jesus replies in verse 11 to 12, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. Now, he's not talking about the saying of what marriage is, because everyone has to receive that. That's verse 4 through 9. But not everyone can receive this saying, i.e. what the disciples just said, better not to marry, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, that means someone who is sterile, unable to have children, who have been born so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. 
uh, in, in the courts, often uh, lady queens would have men castrated, unable to be sexually productive so that they could serve as her attendants. So that's um, a, a shameful thing in, in Jewish culture, but that was a reality. Uh, Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch and preaches the gospel to him. And then Jesus says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Okay, so what is Jesus talking about? Well, I believe what he's talking about is uh, that this idea of being a eunuch, i.e. unable to be married and unable to uh, provide children, is a call and an option for celibacy. The voluntary decision to not pursue marriage or sexual union um, as a for the cause of the kingdom. That's why he says there are some who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, someone, uh, I think it was Origen in the third century, took this very literally and actually literally castrated himself. Don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that there is another option to divorce and remarriage. The, the disciples are saying, oh, it's better not to marry if that's, you know, if we have to stick in this for life, what if I get a shocking, you know, wife? Because in those days, there was arranged marriage. It wasn't like dating. You just, your parents chose for you. So like, it's better not to marry. And Jesus is like, well, maybe it is. For some of you, it may be better not to marry. There, are, there is another option. You can be a legitimate and thriving and valued member in the kingdom community if you choose not to be married but to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom. Perhaps you've choosing to do this, or perhaps you've been divorced and don't seek to be remarried. There's many ways that this could play out. In that culture, to not marry was a dereliction of a man's duty. But now Jesus carves out this new legitimate option that we ought to embrace as a church community. Christians over all history have embraced the option of celibacy as a legitimate way of glorifying God. Notice that Jesus doesn't reply to their quote of, it's better not to marry, with like, no, no, guys, like marriage is awesome. Imagine holding your wife's hand, walking along the Sea of Galilee, like you should really value marriage. Instead, he, he wants, and Douglas O'Donnell says this in his commentary, he wants them to see this. The kingdom of heaven is so important that it should seem perfectly normal if someone would want to give up marriage for it. Paul himself held such a view. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, that is, single. But each has his own gift from God. So it's really reflecting this teaching from Jesus. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He goes on in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman... She's anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Jesus himself, you would notice, was voluntarily celibate for the sake of the kingdom. He never married or engaged in sexual union. 
So too with Paul and many missionaries and saints over the age. And so we shouldn't pass over this option too quickly. R.T. France says that the ideal of marriage remains God's standard for his people, but it's not, as in many Jesus' day would have assumed, the only way of faithfulness to the Creator's purpose. God's people are not all the same, and not all are called to the same path of obedience. The choice that you may make as a man or a woman to remain in vol- uh, voluntarily celibate for the sake of the kingdom is a noble and virtuous choice. A hard choice, just like marriage is a hard choice. But it's one that should be celebrated and accepted within our church culture. Because here's the reality, friends. Every single one of us in this room will be single at some point. Either now, while you await marriage for those who are single, perhaps after a legitimate divorce, or after the death of your spouse. We either are or will be single at some point in our life. And while single, we're all called to celibacy. And while single and celibate, we all ought to dedicate ourselves to the cause of the kingdom, and while you're married too. Now for some who are older singles, and and hearing all of this, this probably doesn't sound like good news or encouragement on a Sunday afternoon. And I do do feel for you, for those who really desire marriage and and, uh, keep having that disappointment of it not happening. And the answer is, I, I don't know why the Lord hasn't provided if that's what you want. It is a good desire to be married. But had any other condition been better for you, well, divine love would have put you there, Mr. Spurgeon says, and I encourage you with that. But for some who are single or who will become single, I want you to consider whether or not God may call you to a life of voluntary celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, to be unencumbered, to be free from the anxieties and pressures of family life. Freed, not for selfish gain and carnal pleasures, but free to serve, free to give, free to lay down your life, free to travel more easily for the sake of mission, free to support the vulnerable, And I encourage you to humbly lay this before the Lord if you're in this position and ask him, Lord, am I single because you're calling me to this for the sake of the kingdom? But I do want to say this as well. If you burn with desire for marriage and you earnestly desire it, you do not need to feel bad about not wanting a life of voluntary celibacy. Jesus is saying, this is a saying for some, but not all. But it might be something that you should consider. So as we conclude, we've seen today that Jesus is making a case for marriage. He wants to hold it up. But he makes a concession for the sin of our lives and our world and makes a ground for divorce. But then he gives a legitimate option, an option that we don't talk a huge amount about, but the option of kingdom celibacy. He wants us to be guided by Genesis. He wants us to go back to Genesis and see the ideal. But he also wants us to live in the good of the gospel. He wants us to know that if you have committed such sins that have led to divorce, you can repent. If you are committing sins that might lead to your divorce, you can confess them and repent even today. And if you confess your sins, you will be forgiven, no matter what they are, by your Lord. And so this sermon is not to heap guilt or shame upon people, but to cause you to see the beauty of it 
to see how far you've fallen short and perhaps the need to repent and seek reconciliation. And as I said, one day we will all be single. Upon death, all marriages end. And in heaven, there is no marriage. But there, well, there's no marriage between us, but there is a final marriage. The most glorious marriage of all. The marriage of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, to his bride, the church. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 and 9, paints this picture. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The greatest blessing any of us could receive is not to be married in this lifetime. It's not to have the the wonders and joys that Jesus outlined in Genesis. The greatest blessing we could ever receive is to have an invitation in our hand to the great marriage supper feast where we will be united with Christ forever and ever and we will be in a perfect state of friendship and love and intimacy like we could never imagine compared to marriages here on earth. So I want us to leave here more than longing for a better marriage, a happier marriage or marriage itself. I want us to long for that marriage, that final day. Even for us as dudes, it seems weird to be talking about it, but that's what it is. We will be married as the church to Jesus Christ. And I want us to long for that day when he returns and we get to be seated with our name card at the the reception of the wedding and we get to feast forever and ever in this greatest union of all. And that's, I think, where Jesus wants us to end. And I I trust that that vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb will encourage you. Let us end. Lord, we thank you for hard texts, texts that stretch us and challenge us, that bring up fears and lost hopes and, and, and all these sins and all these things that go on in our life. We thank you, Lord, that you address them. We thank you, Lord, that you give us guidance in them. Lord, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. You would help us to know how we ought to live. Help us to long for that day when all the sin and mess and failed hopes of this world will pass away. And we will enter into that beautiful state. Oh, that glorious state, oh Lord, where we will be with you. There'll be no more sins. There'll be no more need for Deuteronomy laws for disaster in our lives. But we will be with you, the perfect bridegroom. And we will be your beautiful bride, stripped of all of our uncleanliness and defilements and clothed in your son's very righteousness. Lord, help us to long for that day, to yearn for that day more than anything else. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.